Chapter Two of The Uphill Climb by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Two Wanted Information. Sulking never yet solved a mystery, nor will it accomplish much toward bettering an unpleasant situation. After a day of unmitigated gloom and a night of uneasy dreams, Ford awoke to a white, shifting world of the season's first blizzard and to something like his normal outlook on life. That outlook had ever been cheerful, with the cheerfulness which comes of taking life in twenty-four-hour doses only, and of looking not too far ahead and backward not at all. Plenty of persons live after that fashion, and thereby attain middle life with smooth foreheads and cheeks unlined by thought and Ford was, therefore, not much different from his fellows. Never before had he found himself with anything worse than bodily bruises to sour life for him after a tumultuous night or two in town, and the sensation of a discomfort which had not sprung from some well-defined physical sense was therefore sufficiently novel to claim all his attention. It was not the first time he had fought and forgotten it afterwards nor was it a new experience for him to seek information from his friends after a nightfall of incident. Sandy he had always found tolerably reliable, because Sandy, being of that inquisitive nature so common to small persons, made it a point to see everything there was to be seen, and his peculiar digestive organs might be counted upon to keep him sober. It was a real grievance to Ford that Sandy should have chosen the hour he did for indulging in such trivialities as haircuts and shampoos, while events of real importance were permitted to transpire unseen and unrecorded. Ford, when the grievance thrust itself keenly upon him, roused the reluctant Sandy by pitilessly thrusting an elbow against his diaphragm. Sandy grunted at the impact and sat bolt upright in bed before he was fairly awake. He glanced reproachfully down at Ford, who stared back at him from a badly crumpled pillow. "'Get up,' growled Ford. "'And start a fire going, darn you. You kept me awake half a night snoring. I want a beefsteak with mushrooms, deviled kidneys, waffles with honey, and four banana fritters for breakfast. I'll take it in bed, and while I'm waiting... You can bring me the morning paper and a package of Egyptian hooris. Sandy grunted again, slid reluctantly out into the bitterly cold room, and crept shivering into his clothes. He never quite understood Ford's sense of humor at such times, but he had learned that it was more comfortable to crawl out of bed than to be kicked out, and that vituperation is a mere waste of time when matched against sheer heartlessness and a superior muscular development. You ought to make your wife build the fires, he taunted, when he was clothed and at a safe distance from the bed. He ducked instinctively afterwards, but Ford was merely placing a match by itself on the bench close by. That's one, Ford remarked calmly. I'm going to thrash every misguided humorist who mentions that subject to me in anything but a helpful spirit of pure friendship. I'm going to give him a separate licking for every alleged joke. I want two steaks, Sandy. I'll likely have to give you about seven distinct wallopings. Hand me some more matches to keep tally with. I don't want to cheat you out of your just dues. Sandy eyed him doubtfully while he scraped the ashes from the grate. 
You may want a dozen stakes, but that ain't saying you're gonna get em, he retorted with a feeble show of aggression. And as far as lickin' me goes, he stopped to blow warmth upon his fingers, which were numbed with their grasp of the poker. As for lickin' me, I guess you'll have to do that on the strength of bacon and sourdough biscuits, if you do it at all, which I claim the privilege of doubtin' a whole lot. Ford laughed a little at the covert challenge, made ridiculous by Sandy's diminutive stature, pulled the blankets up to his eyes, and dozed off luxuriously, and although it was extremely tiresome to be told in detail just what a man dreams upon certain occasions, he did dream, and it was something about being married. At any rate, when the sizzling of bacon frying invaded even his slumber and woke him, he felt a distinct pang of disappointment that it was Sandy's carroty head bent over the frying pan instead of a wife with blonde hair which waved becomingly upon her temples. "'Wonder what color her hair is, anyway,' he observed inadvertently, before he was wide enough awake to put the seal of silence upon his musings. "'Huh?' "'I asked when those banana fritters were coming up,' lied Ford getting out of bed and yawning so that his swollen jaw hurt him, and relapsed into his usual taciturnity, which was his wall of defense against Sandy's inquisitiveness. He ate his breakfast almost in silence, astonishing Sandy somewhat by not complaining of the excess of soda in the biscuits. Ford was inclined towards fastidiousness when he was sober, a trait which caused men to suspect him of descending from an upper stratum of society though just when, and just where, or how great that descent had been, they had no means of finding out. Ford, so far as his speech upon the subject was concerned, had no existence previous to his appearance in Montana five or six years before, but he bore certain earmarks of a higher civilization, which, in Sandy's mind, rather concentrated upon a pronounced distaste for soda-yellowed bread, warmed over coffee, and scorched bacon. That he swallowed all these things and seemed not to notice them struck Sandy as being almost as remarkable as his matrimonial adventure. When he had eaten, Ford buttoned himself into his overcoat, pulled his moleskin cap well down, and went out into the storm without a word to Sandy, which was also unusual. It was Ford's custom to wash the dishes, because he objected to Sandy's economy of clean, hot water. Sandy flattened his nose against the window, saw that Ford, leaning well forward against the drive of the wind, was battling his way toward the hotel, and guessed shrewdly that he would see him no more that day. "'He better keep sober till his knuckles get well, anyway,' he mumbled disapprovingly. "'If he goes to fightin', the shape he's in now.' Ford had no intention of fighting. He went straight up to the bar, it is true, but that was because he saw that Sam was at that moment unoccupied, save with a large lump of gum. Being at the bar, he drank a glass of whiskey, not of deliberate intent, but merely from force of habit. Once down, however, the familiar glow of it through his being was exceedingly grateful, and he took another for good measure. "'Hello, Ford,' Sam bethought him to say, after he had gravely taken mental note of each separate scar of battle and had shifted his cud to the other side of his mouth, and had squeezed it meditatively between his teeth. Feel as rocky as you look? Possibly, 
Ford's eyes forbade further personalities. I'm out after information, Sam, and if you got any you aren't using, I'd advise you to pass it over. I can use a lot this morning. Were you sober night before last? Sam chewed solemnly while he considered. Tolerable sober, yes, he decided at last. Sober enough to tend to business. Why? With his empty glass, Ford wrote invisible scrolls upon the bar. I... Did you happen to see... My... The lady I married? He had been embarrassed at first, but when he finished, he was glaring a challenge which shifted the disquiet to Sam's manner. No, I was tending bar all evening, and she didn't come in here. Ford glanced behind him at the sound of the door opening and saw that it was only Bill, and leaned over the bar for greater secrecy, lowering his voice as well. Did you happen to hear who she was? Don't you know anything about her at all? Where she came from? And why? And where she went? Sam backed involuntarily. Ford's tone made it a crime either to know these things or to be guilty of ignorance, which... Sam could not determine. Sam was of the sleek, city-haired type of young men with pimples and pale eyes and a predilection for gum and gossip. He was afraid of Ford, and he showed it. That's just what... Uh, no offense, Ford. I ain't responsible. That's what everybody's wondering. Nobody seems to know. They kind of hoped you'd explain. Sure. Ford's tone was growing extremely ominous. I'll explain a lot of things, if I hear any gabbling going on about my affairs. He was seized then with an uncomfortable feeling that the words were more puerile blustering, and turned away from the bar in disgust. In disgust he pulled open the door, flinched before the blast of wind and snow which smote him full in the face and blinded him, and went out again into the storm. The hotel porch was a bleak place, with snow six inches deep and icy boards upon which a man might easily slip and break a bone or two, and with the wine overhead as the wind sucked under the roof. Ford stood there so long that his feet began to tingle. He was not thinking. He was merely feeling the feeble struggles of a newborn desire to be something and to do something worthwhile a desire which manifested itself chiefly in bitterness against himself as he was, and in a mental nausea against the life he had been content to live. The mystery of his marriage was growing from a mere untoward incident of a night's carouse into a baffling thing which hung over him like an impending doom. He was not the sort of man who marries easily. It seemed incredible that he could really have done it, more incredible that he could have done it, and then have wiped the slate of his memory clean, with the crowning impossibility that a strange young woman could come into town, marry him, and afterward depart, and no man knew who she was, whence she had come, or where she had gone. Ford stepped suddenly off the porch and bored his way through the blizzard toward the depot. The station agent would be able to answer the last question, at any rate. The agent, however, proved disappointingly ignorant of the matter. He reminded Ford that there had not been time to buy a ticket, and that the girl had been compelled to run down the platform to reach the train before it started, and that the wheels began to turn before she was up the steps of the day coach. And don't you remember turning around and saying to me, 
I'm a poor married man, but you can't notice the scar, or something like that. The agent was plainly interested and desirous of rendering any assistance possible, and also rather diffident about discussing so delicate a matter with a man like Ford. Ford drummed his fingers impatiently upon the shelf outside the ticket window. I don't remember a darn thing about it, he confessed glumly. I can't say I enjoy running all around town trying to find out who it was I married and why I married her and where she went afterwards. But that's just the kind of fix I'm in, Lou. I don't suppose she came here and did it just for fun, and I can't figure out any other reason, unless she was plumb loco. From all I can gather, she was a nice girl, and it seems she thought I was Frank Ford Cameron, which I am not. He laughed as a man will laugh sometimes when he is neither pleased nor amused. I might ask McCreary. He's conductor on 14. He might remember where she wanted to go, the agent suggested hesitatingly. And say, what's the matter with going up to Garbin and looking up the record? She had to get a license there, and they'd have her name, age, place of residence, and, and whether she's white or black. The agent smiled uncertainly over his feeble attempt at a joke. I got a license for a friend once, he explained hastily, when he saw that Ford's face did not relax a muscle. There's a train up in forty minutes. Sure, I'll do that, Ford brightened. That must be what I've been trying to think of and couldn't. I knew there was some way of finding out. Throw me a round-trip ticket, Lou. Lordy me. I can't afford to let a real live wife slip the halter like this and leave me stranded and not knowing a thing about her. How much is it? The agent slid a dark red card into the mouth of his office stamp, jerked down the lever, and swung his head quickly toward the sounder, chattering hysterically behind him. His jaw slackened as he listened, and he turned his eyes vacantly upon Ford for a moment before he looked back at the instrument. Well, what do you know about that? He queried, under his breath, released the ticket from the grip of the stamp, and flipped it into the drawer beneath the shelf as if it were so much waste paper. That's my ticket, Ford reminded him levelly. You don't want it now, do you? The agent grinned at him. Oh, I forgot. You couldn't read that. He tilted his head back toward the instrument. Wire just went through. The courthouse at Garbin caught fire in the basement. Something about the furnace, they think. And she's going up in smoke. Hydrants are froze up so they can't get water on it. That fixes your looking up the record, Ford. Ford stared hard at him. Well, I might hunt up the preacher and ask him, he said, his tone dropping again to dull discouragement. The agent chuckled. From all I hear, he observed rashly, you made that same preacher mighty hard to catch. Ford drummed upon the shelf and scowled at the smoke-blackened window, beyond which the snow was sweeping aslant. Upon his own side of the ticket window, the agent pared his nails with his pocket knife and watched him furtively. Ah, hell. What do I care, anyway? Revulsion seized Ford harshly. I guess I can stand it if she can. She came here and married me. 
It isn't my funeral any more than it is hers. If she wants to be so darn mysterious about it, she can go plumb to New York. There were a few decent traits in Ford Campbell. One was his respect for women, a respect which would not permit him to swear about this wife of his, however exasperating her behavior. That's the sensible way to look at it, of course, assented the agent, who made it a point to agree always with a man of Ford's size and caliber, on the theory that amiability means popularity, and that placation is better than plasters. You sure ought to let her do the hunting, and the worrying, too. You aren't to blame if she married you unawares. She did it all on her own hook, and she must have known what she was up against. No, she didn't, flared Ford unexpectedly. She made a mistake, and I wanted to point it out to her and help her out of it if I could. She took me for someone else, and I was just drunk enough to think it was a joke, I suppose, and let it go that way. I don't believe she found out she tied up with the wrong man. It's entirely my fault for being drunk. Well, putting it that way, you're right about it, agreed the adaptable Lou. Of course, if you hadn't been, if whiskey's going to let a fella in for things like this, it's time to cut it out altogether. Ford was looking at the agent attentively. That's right, assented the other unsuspectingly. Whiskey is sure giving you the worst of it all around. You ought to climb on the water wagon, Ford, and that's a fact. Whiskey's the worst enemy you got. Sure. And I'm going to punish all of it I can get my hands on. He turned towards the door. And when I'm good and full of it, he added as an afterthought, I'm liable to come over here and lick you, Lou, just for being such an agreeable cuss. You better leave your mother's address handy. He laughed a little to himself as he pulled the door shut behind him. I bet he'll keep the frost thought off the wounded today just to see who comes up the platform, he chuckled. He would have been more amused if he had seen how the agent ducked anxiously forward to peer through the ticket window whenever the door of the waiting room opened, and how he stared whenever the snow outside creaked under the tread of a heavy step, and he would have been convulsed with mirth if he had caught sight of the formidable billet of wood which Lou kept beside his chair all that day, and had guessed its purpose, and that it was a mute witness to the reputation which one Ford Campbell bore among his fellows. Lou was too wise to consider for a moment the revolver meant to protect the contents of the safe. Even the unintelligent know better than to throw a lighted match into a keg of gunpowder. Ford leaned backward against the push of the storm and was swept up to the hotel. He could not remember when he had felt so completely baffled. The incident of the girl and the ceremony was growing to something very like a calamity, and the mystery which surrounded it began to fret him intolerably and the very unusualness of a trouble he could not settle with his fists whipped his temper to the point of explosion. He caught himself wavering, nevertheless, before the windswept porch of the hotel office. That, too, was strange. Ford was not wont to hesitate before entering a saloon. More often he hesitated about leaving. "'What's the matter with me, anyway?' he questioned himself impatiently. I'm acting like I hadn't a right to go in and take a drink when I feel like it. 
It's just a slight touch of matrimony acts like that with a man. What can the real thing be like? I always heard it made a fool of a fellow. To prove to himself that he was still untrammeled and at liberty to follow his own desire, he stamped across the porch, threw open the door, and entered with a certain defiance of manner. Behind the bar, Sam was laughing with his mouth wide open so that his gum showed shamelessly. Bill and Alec and Big Jim were leaning heavily against the bar, laughing also. I bet she's a heart and hander, trying a new scheme to get a man. Think of nabbing a man when he's drunk. That's a new one. Sam brought his lips close enough together to declare, and chewed vigorously upon the idea, until he glanced up and saw Ford standing by the door. He turned abruptly, caught up a towel, and began polishing the bar with the frenzy of industry which never imposes upon one in the slightest degree. Bill glanced behind him and nudged Alec into caution, and in the silence which followed, the popping of a piece of slate-vein coal in the stove sounded like a volley of small-caliper pistol shots. End of chapter 2